The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva when practicing deeply, the prana paramita perceives that all five skandhas are empty and is saved from all suffering and distress. Sariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. That which is form is empty that which is emptiness, form. The same is true about feelings and emotions, perceptions, impulses, and consciousness. Sariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness. They do not appear, neither do they disappear. They are not tainted, neither are they pure. They do not increase, neither do they decrease. Therefore, in emptiness, no form, no feelings, no perceptions, impulses, or consciousness. No eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of eyes, and so forth, until no realm of mind consciousness. No ignorance and also no extinction of it and so forth until no old age and death and also no extinction, extinction of them. No suffering, no origination, no ending, no beginning, no path, no cognition, also no attainment with nothing to attain. The Bodhisattva depends on Pranaparamita and the mind is no hindrance. Without any hindrance, no fear exists. Far apart from any perverted views, one dwells in Nirvana. In the three worlds, all Buddhas depend on Pranaparamita and attain Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Therefore, Know that Pranaparamita is the greatest transcendent mantra, is the great bright mantra, is the utmost mantra, is the supreme mantra which is able to relieve all suffering and is true, not false. So Sariputra proclaimed the Pranaparamita mantra, proclaimed the mantra which says, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasamgate, Bodhisvaha. At the heart of each of us, whatever our imperfections, there exists a silent pulse of perfect rhythm, a complex wave forms and resonances, which is absolutely individual and unique. 
and yet which connects us to everything in the universe. The act of getting in touch with this pulse can transform our personal experience and in some way alter the world around us. The convergence between science and Eastern thought and the consequent emergence of a new paradigm in recent times offers a renewed hope that we may yet be able to transform ourselves and the world around us. The dangers of failing to do so are readily apparent, mostly in the near destruction of the ecological system of the planet. There are many tools of transformation, but the only place where transformation really takes place is in the human heart. The ancient traditions of the East have always sought to understand the nature of reality within one's own heart. It is not an accident that the Chinese word sin stands for heart-mind. The Heart Sutra, an ancient scripture from the Mahayana wisdom schools of Buddhism, is an insight into the nature of ultimate reality through intuitive wisdom. The spaciousness of this insight allows the heart to beat in its naturalness beyond disputations and ideological arguments. The conception of physical things and phenomena as transient <coughs> manifestations of an underlying fundamental or fixed entity is not only a basic element of quantum field theory, but also a basic element of the Eastern worldview. The intuition behind the physicist's interpretation of the subatomic world in terms of the quantum field is closely paralleled by that of Eastern mystic who interprets his or her experience of the world in terms of an ultimate underlying reality. Buddhists express the same idea when they call the ultimate reality sunyata, emptiness, or the void, and affirm that it is a living void which gives birth to all forms in the phenomenal world. Thus, the void of the Eastern mystic can easily be compared to the quantum field of a subatomic physics. Like the quantum field, it gives birth to an infinite variety of forms which it sustains and eventually reabsorbs. Did you get that? <laughs> well, then I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Someone turn the lights on. Just a little brighter. So good evening. <coughs> So-called the Heart Sutra is the central teaching of all Buddhism that flows from the account of the Buddha's own experience of ultimate reality. It is said that 2,700 years ago, the young Siddhartha wanted to not only simply understand the dynamics of the human experience, particularly human suffering, 
but wanted to literally know what was real and what was not. That is to say, wanted to pierce the human, what he perceived, limited cognitive view of the world in order to see reality. Tonight, we're going to take a look at that one particular part of the Heart Sutra from which all teachings in Buddhism have flowed and which, if you were listening, most recently, quantum physics science also finds its most fundamental teaching. The teaching that what we perceive as being solid and real, whether we are talking about this bench or the floor beneath us, or what we often perceive to be solid and real when we are experiencing emotions and feelings is in fact empty and void. That what we perceive to be matter is in fact nothing more than a form of energy waves that are constantly flowing and changing. And the example that Einstein Buddha gave was that if we were to place any form of matter under the proper microscope, whatever it may be, eventually we can see that what is present is not solid, is not fixed, is not the reality we often consider it to be. What the Buddha was also interested in was how to live in what he defined or described as a paradoxical reality. That is to say, if there is no fixed form or reality that we can say lasts and is permanent, how does one navigate one's own lifetime within that paradox? How does one live skillfully? And in the domain of the discussion of human experience, which is what we are going to center on tonight, using the Heart Sutra as a tool to explore it, in the human experience, often, as I said a moment ago, you and I tend to experience our day-to-day -day experiences, especially those strong emotions that tend to get a grip on us and bring about much of the stress and anxiety we feel. We're going to take a look at what the Heart Sutra has to say about those feelings and emotions in a way to learn how to live more skillfully. That is to say, in a way to learn how to navigate through stress and anxiety, through fear, and so forth. And one of the most profound uh, lines in the Heart Sutra, if not the whole sutra as profound as it is, is the line that talks about fear as a function of a hindrance of the mind, and that that hindrance of the mind is a function of some kind of cognitive or ideological approach we often take in viewing our life and our participation or our connection with all other life forms. <coughs> that in fact, again, our perception is not real at all levels. When the Buddhists talk about the five skandhas, they are speaking to another central part of the Heart Sutra that says anything we as human beings experience, we experience exclusively through the perceptions of smell and taste, sound, feelings, memories, and so forth. Therefore, our experience, again as Aldous Huxley points out, our experience of life and from moment to moment 
is never really what is going on. Our experience, that feeling, that emotion, that, if you will, story, and we're going to take a look at that at great lengths tonight, that story we end up with about what happened to me is nothing more than just that, a interpretation of what happened, a perception of what happened. And that if we are ever going to really experience the infinite capacity we all possess inherently, the Buddha said, to rise above suffering and to know the state of nirvana consistently from moment to moment, no matter the circumstance and situation, we need to realize all sariputra, all form is empty and emptiness does not differ from form. By that, again, all emotions, all feelings, all experiences do not possess an inherent quality. Do not possess an inherent quality. In fact, nothing that exists inherently possesses any quality. That any quality we perceive in anything or anyone or any circumstance or any situation is the quality we as modern therapy calls project onto it. Project onto it. And the good news there is that if that is so, and it is true, not a lie, if that is so, then at any time we can change that and write a new story. And in so doing, change our experience from moment to moment. And in so doing, become clearer or gain clearer insight into our meaning, our purpose, and the purpose of life in general. As I was contemplating this evening, I, for whatever reason, began to think about uh, an aunt of mine that lived many years ago in my family. And before I tell you the story about her as an example tonight, I'm confident that each and every person in this room has either known as a relative or a friend or a neighbor that one particular person who we often say, no matter what happens, she's always got a good spin on things. No matter what happens to her, she's always got a positive attitude about it. She's always smiling. She never says a bad word about life or anyone. If you haven't experienced anyone like that, then you need to find one and find it and experience it because it is transformational. As it was for me at a very, very young age, around 9 or 10, when I used to spend my summers in uh, northwestern Pennsylvania with my father's family. And my Aunt Laura was one of those people. In fact, she was so much one of those people that as the years went by and I used to go back and visit relatives even after her death and so forth, even today, most recently as a few months ago, whatever generation of my family uh, that you speak to, when you mention the name Laura, there's this quietness that comes over and you feel like you're in a Norman Rockwell painting, you see. Aunt Laura, who is always and continues to be remembered as a kind of saint. And I remember visiting her again on a regular basis. And whenever you went to Aunt Laura's house, 
She welcomed you as if you were some long lost friend of hers. And the time you spent there, it was her responsibility to make sure that you were the most important person in the world. And often when we see people like that, we tend to think, well, they must have a good life, they must have it nice, they must have it easy. Only to be surprised that more often the opposite is true. And the story of my Aunt Laura's life is similar. She truly was a saint. She was a very beautiful woman, very simple. Never wore any makeup, always wore simple clothing that she sewed herself. She was from that generation. Her home was simple, her furniture was simple, but it was like the most beautiful place to be in. And I loved her most of all because she always had one chair that was my chair when I would go to her house. Aunt Laura was gentle in voice, she was gentle in touch, and uh, she was just wonderful to be around. But the other part of her life story had to do with what everybody knew, that as much as Aunt Laura was an angel and a saint, her husband was a no good SOB. He was a mean man, a tough man, a hard man, who was known for his unfaithfulness to this wonderful woman and to his three beautiful daughters she gave birth to often running around with other women. And the story goes, and it, it culminates in this wonderful example of how Algerus Huxley's words speak to us and how the Heart Sutra speaks to us about this notion of fixed reality. And even though this man was so mean to his wife, and often mean to others and known to be a philanderer and everything else, even though that was so, Aunt Laura never spoke a bad word about him. Aunt Laura never entered into a bad word conversation about anybody. She always had some, some point of view about every situation where, again, it was kind of like, well, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know, so don't judge. And she was one of those people who religiously lived by, if you have nothing good to say, don't say anything at all. And she never did. She never did. All the way up into the day that this man brought his mistress home to live with them. He brought her home to live with them because back then they had no hospitals and clear understanding of cancer. And what happened was that the mistress had gotten cancer and he decided to bring her home and live there. And up until the day she died, Aunt Laura took care of her. Aunt Laura bathed her, Aunt Laura clothed her, Aunt Laura fed her. And when she died, Aunt Laura's husband left her. And Aunt Laura religiously visited her grave regularly because he just left, including her in the grave. And she took care of the gravesite. And that's the type of woman she was because Aunt Laura, for some reason, I believe, knew that our perception is our own and it's what we make. And that's what the message of the Heart Sutra has to say to us tonight. It says that not only doesn't this table have any real material reality, any fixed reality, but our experiences at every moment are not real. For example, happiness does not really exist anywhere. That's why often I say to my students that say they want to be happy, I send them out to go looking for it and say, bring it back. <laughs> and we'll talk about it then. Likewise, whenever any of the ancient Zen masters were asked 
you know, please help me make my mind more peaceful, he would say to them, go get your mind and bring it here, and I'll help you with that. <clears throat> our perceptions are our own, is the message of all Sariputra, form is empty and emptiness is form. And in a clear understanding of this fundamental teaching of Buddhism, we can learn to manage through the most difficult times in life. In fact, if you are willing to be courageous, as we all have had to be one time or another in our life, as I have had to also, and take a look at those most painful moments in life, you may be willing to at least admit to yourself that what made those moments more painful than anything else was our unwillingness to look from a different point of view. Our willingness only to attach to the feeling and the definition we thought the feeling had for us. And this is the other important lesson of the Heart Sutra. When we talk about what feelings mean to us, if feelings are empty or void of any intrinsic reality, if everything is empty and whatever reality we give to it is the one we project onto it, our definition is the same. Our conclusions are the same. One of the most famous teachings of one of the most ancient and uh, well-known Zen masters was to always respond to every question about the future or what was coming. And people would say, well, this is so, is it not? And he would say, mm, maybe, mm, maybe, mm, maybe. That's all he would ever answer with. Maybe, we'll see, maybe, we'll see, and so forth. He understood the impermanence of all things included, again, one's experience. And most of the time, when we feel like the pain is never going to leave, when we feel like this terrible thing that has happened to us is going to last forever, it has to do with our ignorance of that fundamental reality that not only the Buddha declared 2,700 years ago, but recently in the last three or four decades, physicists have affirmed in their own inquiry into the reality of all things. So tonight I want to talk about the means by which we can, <clears throat> again, navigate our way through the most difficult times in life, and the means by which we can more fully enjoy the wonderful times in life, which the Buddha also taught are causes for suffering. He said even the pleasurable times in life cause suffering because we do the same thing with pleasurable times in life that we do with the difficult times in life. We set them up in our minds as lasting, or at least the good times, obviously, we expect to last. We want them to last. And our attachment and clinging to that notion literally limits how much joy we experience. That is to say, there's so much more happiness to be experienced in those moments for happiness that we never get to know because whether we are aware of it or not, whether we are doing it consciously or unconsciously, what we always bring to good times is the fear of them going away. And that fear that the Buddha said that the Heart Sutra points to when it says, when there is no hindrance in the mind, there is no fear. Therefore, if there is fear, there is a hindrance in the mind. 
And the hindrance in the mind, as I said a moment ago, is our constant worryment. This is going to, you know, it's good, but it's not good enough. It's kind of like what I often say when I talk to people about what they want, and I ask them the question, so are you happy now? They often respond by saying, yeah, I'm happy. I'm not happy, but I'm happy, I say. It seems like it's never enough. And all of that is not just a simple, uh, you know, again, uh, example of how selfish we can be. It's an example of our ignorance of the reality of all things. So if I were to reinterpret the Sacred Heart Sutra, it might sound something like this. O Sariputra, all emotions you experience are not intrinsically fixed this way or that way. They exist as waves of energy. Those waves of energy, energy is a function of how real you make the definition. At all times, we are projecting onto every circumstance and every situation the value that projects back at us and literally creates for us our experience. The first question among three questions we're going to explore tonight on how to truly navigate in these moments, again, taking the difficult times as the context for our work tonight, so that whenever we find ourselves suffering in any way, sadness, disappointment, anger, or resentment, the first question we need to ask ourselves in the reality of quantum physics, which defines or at least affirms the Heart Sutra written some 2,000 years ago, the first question we ask ourselves at any time when we feel stuck emotionally is, without a doubt, what meaning am I giving to this? Once again, the meaning we often give to circumstances and situations, well, the meaning we often say circumstances and situations have in our life are meanings we have given to it. We have given meaning to that. We have defined it this way or that way. It's kind of like when somebody speaks to us in a certain way and we feel that they spoke to us in a way that was bad or not good or not appropriate and so forth, and we get stuck in that resentment of that. And the, in reality, what has happened in that moment is that we have taken our expectation or our, our ideological, our ideal notion of how you know, maybe this party should have spoken to us. And out of that ideal is the real meaning, and that meaning comes from us. A simple example or exercise that we can do, and we will do it in here tonight, to help each of us realize that all our feelings and emotions originate and end with us. All our feelings and emotions, including the emotion or feeling we get from someone else's behavior. When you take a look at the experience which meditation practice offers you an opportunity to stop and actually inquire into, explore. And when you read some of the original texts of the Heart Sutra, it says that Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, when penetrating reality, 
That is to say, the, the, that particular part of the text talks about Avalikhi Tesfarah didn't just kind of like stumble upon this. Avalikhi Tesfarah took the time to really look closely and deeply to the experience going on in that moment. And having done so, having gone into deep samadhi, having achieved that deepest quality of meditation, was able to then see what was really going on in that experience. And that is where, again, meditation and devoted meditation becomes a powerful tool for everyone, not just the monk, not just Avalokitesvara, but for all of us. That is why the practice of regularly taking time to really inquire to, into what happened before coming to a conclusion, to really inquire into the full scope of what happened. <coughs> because in every circumstance, in every situation, a formula that my father gave me many years ago is apropos here. He would say in the domain of relationships, whenever there is a conflict between two parties, always remember this. There's his truth, there's her truth, and then there's what really happened, you see. There's his experience of it, there's her experience of it, and then there's what really happened, you see. And that what really happened is what, again, Aldous Huxley points to when he says, experience we have from moment to moment is never what really happened to us. It's what we do or did with what happened to us. So in the course of our day, we have a certain kind of day, and what most of us usually do at the end of the day is talk about what kind of day we have. And when we sit down at the coffee table with a loved one or a friend, and we talk about the day, and we say, my day was, everything after that is a story. Everything after that is my point of view, my perception of the day. And that perception... That story I'm telling you has nothing to do with anyone outside of me. Because that perception is always being constructed and shaped and formed by my expectations, by my beliefs, by my opinions, by my desires. All the five skandhas are at work formulating that experience. So whenever I even talk about your love for me, and this became a powerful insight for me when I was going through one of the most painful betrayals in my life not too long ago. And, you know, when, when you feel betrayed by someone you love, one of the, part of the grieving process, therapists will tell you, is similar to losing someone who's died. And part of that is those moments when you think you can't live without them. And the reason why we think we can't live without them is because we tend to think that even, and you need to hear this, that even the love we talk about they gave us that was so wonderful didn't happen. The love they gave me that was so wonderful or you was the love you were creating all the time. That all experience for me begins is sourced and reflects back to me. That is to say, how I see you. If I see you as a wonderful lover, that's my stuff. If I see you anything less than that, that's also my stuff. And even though mine 
creates the perception that it's happening out here and coming at me. The truth of the matter is, I'm creating all of that within here at all times. And when I know that, the Heart Sutra says, nothing is attained and nothing is lost. When I know that, when I have truly experienced that, as Avalokitesvara experienced the reality of all matter, all existing things, what I get to do at all times is to create it exactly the way I want. Kind of like how Aunt Laura did it. Kind of like how that other person you may know did it and does it regularly. It's all about my willingness to experience myself as the cause in every circumstance and situation. My experience as the cause of my experience. I am not saying I cause you to do anything. I am not saying that someone else causes uh, for me. Uh, no, I'm, say I'm not saying that uh, I cause things to other people. But what I'm saying to you is I cause my experience of that. I am the source of that. All Sariputra, that object you look at, has no intrinsic meaning except the meaning you give to it. Except the meaning you give to it. Just as there is no such thing as happiness in the world that I can go get, pick up, and bring back here. This is true about all feelings and all emotions. Any questions? Hi, Beth. Good to see you. Um, I had, my question has to do with time. It seems to me that we never have anything because the moment has already passed. Yeah. So even experience is is nothing, is in a way unknowable because <coughs> it doesn't really exist except in memory. <clears throat> experience at the level of the heart, as the Heart Sutra says, as the, te the mystics taught it, as quantum physics speaks about it. This moment, and again, semantics is always a problem. My experiencing the present moment, being here now, being present to now, is knowable, but not in the way we know everything else. Okay? So I cannot know it, for example, cognitively. I cannot know it that way. I cannot know it, for example, and say, mm, that was good. I can know it, but what you talk about the past is that the moment, however, I kind of like try to tell you about knowing it, then you're right. I can't because now that's gone. That's gone. So I can experience it now. But the moment I try to grasp it, fix it, root it, it's gone. That's why everything is of the nature of impermanence. See, when most people hear that teaching in Buddhism, they, they hear time passes by, things change, you die, and you move on. That's a very small part of that teaching. This is the bigger part of it. The moment I try to create any fixed experience, any fixed reality to anything, you're right. I can't because now I am doing it about what happened. 
And whenever I'm talking about what happened, thinking about what happened, reflecting on about what happened, that's something in the past. And yes, that's memory. And memory is another form of story. Memory is another form of story. Okay? But it seems to me memory is also who we are. And if when I mean, people with Alzheimer's or other dementia lose memory, they lose themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because memory, it, well, memory is not who we are in the sense of who we are. It's who we became in our lifetime. All right? So, yes, that person disappears when they lose their memory. That person does not exist along with all the other characters in that memory, all the other places in that memory, all the other things in that memory. It all disappears. Yes. Because, again, memory like my effort to talk about anything is illusory, okay? It's, it's, you know, constantly going. It's here and it's gone. It's here and it's gone, and so forth. So, the, the, the issue is, if I want to live at that level of understanding of life, then I can't complain about the suffering, because that's where the suffering takes place. What we are going to hopefully look at tonight or, and understand and be able to take with us and leave here and use it is how we can live at a level that the Buddha prescribed that literally minimizes that suffering, if not offers cessation from that suffering. And in memory, Memory is like, you know, when we think of memory, you know, when I'm remembering something, it's kind of like a projector in a movie theater, okay? So again, our concept of memory is that, it, that these things I am remembering exists apart from me, okay? The people in my life, the places in my life, and so forth. Again, the Heart Sutra, like quantum physics, teaches us, no. That's not the reality. As I said a moment ago, O Sariputra, when Avalokitesvara penetrates the mystery of human relationship and asks the question, where did all the love go? The answer is, it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> okay? Unless you got rid of it. You see? Unless you've chosen to get rid of it. Because... We are, you know, when I hear Jesus say, you are the Alpha and the Omega, or I am the Alpha and the Omega, what he is saying is exactly that. That it all is sourced in me, and it all ends in me. Even my experience of Beth right now. You know, I might say, as I said about my Aunt Laura, she was a beautiful woman, a wonderful woman. There's something about me that makes it possible to say that. Not Aunt Laura. You see? And that's true about everything else. It's kind of like when they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So is everything else. It's all right here going on, not out here. And when I know that, um, even uh, when I know that such things like forgiveness, people who are able to forgive easily somehow know this either consciously or unconsciously. They somehow know that resentment 
and clinging to resentment uh, takes them out of the flow of reality. And that's where the suffering is. Because what we do when we resent or blame, we, again, we miss the mark. The power is not over there. The power has always been here. And that's the power to not only love, but to be loved. It all ha it's all here. It's not out there. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful thought. I can have it all. Because <laughs> I already do. You see? Thank you, Beth. Any other questions? Chico? I should ask a question. If everything was self-contained, how does the connectedness with each other work? Because it would seem that if I could manage all of my suffering by simply recognizing it within myself, wouldn't that be a very contained self sort of solution to suffering as opposed to being connected to others? How does, how does connect, being connected to others work in that context of that discussion? What do we know about atoms? It is a self-contained form of energy, isn't it? Or is what would happen if any one atom was really disconnected from all the others? We'd be in deep space. But what would first happen? Awful big bang. <coughs> okay? Right? Only if the atom were split, Roshi. But it but to be split means to be separate from, to be separated from. Okay? And that's not possible. So again, we have to be really careful. Think about this for a moment before we go on and with what Chico is asking. We are going tonight to try to see this with the very mechanism that prevents us from seeing it. Okay? So that is why, again, the Heart Sutra says, Avalokitesvara realizes this reality only while in deep samadhi. You have to see this. So I say to you in response to your question, no, there is no disconnection because you are me and I am you. Now you may say, oh, okay, that makes sense, Roshi, but the truth of the matter is, is that most of us know that only at a conceptual level. Right. If we knew it at an experiential level, I, I would be at a beach having martinis tonight. Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Got to get to the beach. <laughs> Any other questions? Hi. Hi. I, I was just wondering, um, you're explaining that everything is our perception, but I find it interesting that you may take, take your story of your Aunt Laura, that everyone perceived her the same way, kind of like a saint. So how is that then your own perception if everyone is sharing that same perception of this particular individual, and the same might be true of it might be a jerk, say, at a supermarket or anywhere for that matter, and this person is such a jerk that everyone perceives that person <coughs> as being an idiot or a jerk. So well, some of those, just that, yeah. that your perception, if everyone is having the same shared... Yeah, well, my answer to that is that some of those people who said that were Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm saying is that even the, again... We assume that when I use the word saint, I'm talking about what you mean when you use the word saint. Okay? So, for example, maybe the Protestants meant she was saintly. You see? 
Well, I'm just thinking maybe she was just a good person. Good everyone person. Perceived yeah. her to be it. Yeah. But, but everyone that encountered her, it seemed from your story, shared the same feeling that she was a good person. Yeah. So then it wasn't just your perception, it was there was something about her that caused everyone to no. share that same no? No. 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 Everyone everyone possesses the same inherent Buddha nature. Okay. Okay? So one nature observing, experiencing, and perceiving the same object. That's all that happened. Okay. It's kind of like mass hypnosis. Um, Things like that happen. You see? Kind of like that. You see? Oh, Sariputra. Nothing has any intrinsic value except the value you give to it. Okay. So what if all of those people were just projecting that onto Laura? Just like I was projecting it onto Laura. If you asked Laura if she was a saint, she would say, Oh, don't say that. And she would mean it. She would mean it. So remember... The very instrument that prevents us from seeing this is the one you're trying to use to see it. You've got to remember that. <clears throat> the very mechanism, tonight we are listening with the very mechanism that prevents us from hearing. Okay. <laughs> okay. Actually, may I comment? Um, yes. The other thing is that from Laura other people might perceive Laura as being almost a doormat. I mean, in the sense. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, oh, yeah. it's not like everyone would have necessarily oh, yeah. had a view that she was saint. Yeah, and with some of them, that was part of the conversation also. She's a saint, but, man, she lets this guy walk all over. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, again, that was their perception. Right. To an eight-year-old boy, she was a... Oh, I mean, she had my own chair. She always had candy for me. You know, she always hugged me and kissed me and told me how cute I was. I created a really neat lady. <laughs> Hi. Um, to her question about the jerk in the grocery store, am I correct in thinking that, you know, if 10 people saw this person and thought, what a jerk, you cut in line, um, would it be each of our separate perceptions, but because per, perchance we all grew up with certain morals, like you don't cut in line, and so maybe that's with that. You got you're getting it because it. let's say let's say ten of those people grew up in the same household because again my perception of you is a function that's part of that perception, the morals that I grew up with, the opinions about people who cut in line. I'm certainly not the only one that grew up in a prejudicial, discriminatory home, okay? <laughs> you see, like that. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, you got it. So, whether it was ten people who saw her that way or one person, you know, each and every one of those people were projecting that onto her, okay? Good, very good. Hi. So, in other words, <clears throat> to stop all wars, everyone has to perceive a war in the same way. Yes. To stop all wars, everyone has to finally say enough is enough and too much is plenty. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and you, you know, I've been reading a lot about that in the Huffington Post lately. I mean, you know, when are we going to have enough of this? 
You know, when it went, yeah, exactly. War, the power, and not only wars, the power we complain those people in Washington are misusing exists only because of us. And the reason why they continue doing what they do is because we continue to let them. And the reason why we continue to let them is because we believe they've got the power, and that's why this whole experiment called democracy is going away, because we, didn't, we still don't believe what they said in the beginning, of the people, by the people, and for the people. You see? We don't believe that. So, yeah, when I finally understand that if I want peace, I need to create it, then there'll be peace. Because it's not going to come from anywhere else. Certainly not going to come from them. That's great. That's a great example. Thank you, Ellen. Anyone else? <coughs> Hi. Um, so my question is around, in terms of really painful experiences or traumatic or deaths or any of that, where do you find the balance of giving legitimacy to certain perceptions or emotions? All perceptions are legitimate. Okay? This is not about right perception or wrong perception. This is about your perception in that moment is your perception that when we ex often when we experience, especially in those moments, pain, we think it has to do with death and dying. Okay? So, for example, when my daughter was one and a half, she went to her grandmother's funeral. And while everybody else was grieving in that way, she was running around trying to get people to play with her. Okay? So, again... This is about recognizing, and, we'll, and, and again, I'll re-emphasize re the importance of recognizing this in a moment. It's not about, is my experience legitimate? No, that's not what this is about, because that doesn't matter. What matters is to know that my experience, I'm creating that. So when you grieve over someone who's died in your life, that's a legitimate experience for you, and you might grieve over them where I might say, Stacy, what, what's the matter? What's up? Everybody dies. What's that about is what we're talking about. Why is it pain? Why would it be painful for you and not for me? And again, because I'm not creating that experience. So again, remember what I said a moment ago, the very mechanism that impedes us from seeing this is what we're trying to use. That very mechanism thinks we're trying to illegitimize experiences right now. You see? Because that's what it does. Ego comes from survival. So I want to make clear, before we continue with your question, this is not about whether my experience of this is the right one or the wrong one. This is about my experience of this is my experience of this, but not necessarily what's happening. <clears throat> Because <laughs> I am not going to defend the heart sutra all night. It is the truth, not a lie, damn it. <laughs> Thanks. Anyone else? Tina? So, are there, is there ever a situation where someone else's actual, um, I guess for lack of a better word, their energy, your perception of it, is still only your perception of it? You, you cannot actually... How do I ask this? Maybe you understood my question already. Can their energy actually be the true way it is being projected, not just your perception? My experience of any other 
form of matter, whether it be human or this, I am creating at all times. My experience of it, okay? So if I hear your question right, is there any time when I am making you sad? No. You are making you sad by what I'm doing. That doesn't minimize maybe that what I'm doing is inappropriate and what I'm doing is harmful and what I'm doing should be even punished under the laws of civilization. Doesn't minimize that. Doesn't say that that shouldn't happen. What I'm saying is that at all times, your, your love for Tiggy and your experience of that was coming from you, not from Tiggy. Remember what I told you when Tiggy wanted you to know, okay? Tiggy was cool about the whole thing, right? So your love for that and your experience of that was coming from you. It was all sourced in you, coming from you. And because, back to what um, uh, Beth over here said, right? Beth, Beth, I gotta get the, I'm not good at this. Over here said, okay, because of, we'll say, who you are, the stuff that makes you who you are sitting there right now, the stuff you learned, your conditioning and all of that, that is the formula, that's the conjoining of, you know, different elements that make it possible for you to experience the way you did, and maybe someone else not. See, if you look at this, it makes sense, <laughs> okay? We say, well, you know, you don't know what kind of upbringing they had. Don't we say things like that? Or you say, well, you don't know what might have happened to them in the past. Like, that's what we're saying here, that my, even my actions in life are determined by the ideals and morals or lack of morals that I learned in my lifetime not because you made me do it. I react to you and your behavior because of what's going on in me, not because of what you did. I can never say you made me do it. That's what I'm saying. Imagine what your relationships would be like if you got that now, if you really stopped doing that. I can never say you made me do it. When I can never say you made me do it, what's left for me to do? to make it the way I want it. It's kind of like, why do you keep being stuck in that when you can be free from it? You well, like that. And that begins with the use of the first step. What meaning am I attaching to that? What meaning am I giving to the circumstance? So at any given time, at any given moment, at any given event, whenever I'm having an experience that's difficult, because we, don't want to, we usually don't even bother thinking about this stuff that's pleasurable. But even that, whenever I'm having an experience, whether pleasurable or difficult, I need to ask the question, what meaning am I giving to this? But because tonight's about managing through stress and pain and anxiety, we'll stick with the negative ones. So whenever I'm feeling kind of a negative experience about something that just happened, I need to stop and ask the question, what meaning am I giving to that? Because that meaning about what just happened is what is formulating and feeding and constructing my experience. And constructing my experience. Another word for what we're doing tonight is responsibility. 
See, responsibility begins with the willingness on my part to experience myself as cause in the matter, no matter the circumstance or situation. Okay? So uh, one of, one of the uh, things therapists learned about people who are usually always happy is that they are responsible. People who are always happy don't talk like, well, if only this happened, then my life would be good. No, people who are always happy see that they are the source for the experience they want in their life at that moment. The truth of the matter is, whether we like it or not, we can choose to be happy if we want to. See? Abraham Lincoln once said the same thing. Every one of us are happy to the extent that we choose to be, he said. This was a guy who dealt with the Civil War, dealt with uh, bipolar, uh, <laughs> disease, and crazy wife, and all the other things going on at that time. And he said, hey, I can be happy to the point I choose to be happy. And he was right. That's why he knew you can't please anybody. <laughs> Because if the crowd's pleased, that's the crowd. You see? That's why Zen masters don't take applauses seriously, because we know it doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with you. If you like what I'm telling you tonight, that's your stuff. If you don't, that's your stuff too. I got my stuff and I go home with it. <laughs> <laughs> Just as I came with it. All right, so take a moment and consider a recall or consider a moment in your life that was difficult. Just call it back to memory, if you will. Recall a moment in your life when possibly some other person behaved in a way that was difficult for you. Then ask the question, what meaning did you give to that? What meaning did you give to that? Let's take a moment to look at that. It can be a circumstance or situation. It could be, you know, when you were driving the car today and someone cut you off or someone, you know, ran a light and you got upset. What meaning did you give to that? I mean, just take a look at that. That's a profound yet simple example. I mean, how many times do we turn a simple act of maybe not paying attention on the road and coming over into our lane into a into a predetermined, pre-decided you know, effort to kill us by that person. You know, and we demonize them and curse them into the eternal fires of hell and so forth. What meaning am I giving to that? The second part of the formula goes, how do I know that meaning to be true? How do I know that to be true? And then the third part is, is that meaning I am giving to this circumstance, this, this situation, this event, getting me any closer to where I really want to be? That is to say, for example, does that meaning help me to free myself up to move on? to free myself up to just be, to free myself up to have a good time tonight. You see? 
What meaning am I giving to it? How do I know that meaning to be true? And is the meaning that I've given to it helpful or helping me to get any closer to where I want to be? And if it isn't, that's a signal to choose a new meaning. Write a different story about it. It's kind of like an experiment sociologists did one day with a group of people where they, they, in the experiment room, they deliberately made the day very difficult for them. And when they got to the moment of the actual experience, they sat them down in chairs and said, now everybody smile and stay smiling. And what they discovered was that those people were unable to remain upset. just by the practice of smiling and keeping a smile on their face. They were unable to hold on to the resentment of the difficult day. Thought is energy. Thought is energy creating matter. The matter meaning the experience in our gut and our body. You cannot be angry without the thought of anger. You can't. Just like the group of people found that they could eliminate a terrible day by just smiling at the end of it. <laughs> That's all they had to do. And they could do that every day the rest of their life. Just go <coughs> sit down, close your eyes, and smile. And don't stop smiling until it goes away. Hi, Arnold. The second part of the three steps, how do I know that? To be true. To be true. It's impossible to know. If, any, if, if, if everything is your own perception, then if you perceive it to be true, it is true. If you perceive it not to be true, then it's not true. But how do I know that to be, maybe a better word is, how do I know that to be a fact? For example, if I perceive your behavior as a deliberate attack on me, a deliberate disrespectful uh, statement or what have you on me, that's where the question really works. How do I know that that was, that factually, that was Arnold's intention? You can't know. Unless I ask you. Even then. Well... If you're a liar, I can't know. <laughs> That's the point. Therefore, you are building, from what you are suggesting, then aren't we building most of our life experiences, which are the stepping stones to tomorrow, on lies? No, on things that you can never prove whether they're true. But we, but we, we act as if they are true, don't we? Yes. So that's what I mean. Okay, and if that's the case, then all that's left is in the is in the third question: Is this getting me any closer to being happy? And if it isn't, then I change the story. I let go. You see, but none of this works unless you are willing to be responsible for what you want. Okay, so what Arnold brings out about the second question is absolute. It's, he's correct. 
if all perception is of my making, therefore I cannot know, therefore the third question finds its power. Well then, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you can stay there, moan and groan and complain all you want. I'm going to the game. <laughs> you know? So, you know, especially when the most terrible things happen, as I said recently when it happened to me a few years ago, I mean, we, get re we anchor into the story as real. And what we, don't under what we misunderstand or miss to see is that, again, it's not a minimization or, you know, kind of like uh, get out of jail card for the behavior of the person. It's like what's keeping me stuck, though, has nothing to do with that. That's what happened. It is what happened. Now, what's so now? What's so now? And what's so now is quite human for me as it is for anyone else. We want to heal. We want to move on. So that's where the question, the third question comes in. Is my unwillingness to either let go of that story or to rewrite the story, is my unwillingness keeping me from being where I really want to be? And the answer is always yes. It's always yes. If I'm stuck in pain... What is causing that is my unwillingness to say this. I, I, some of you may have heard the story. I enjoyed telling this story. And it was about my uh, nephew when he was about five or six years old. And my family had all gone to the Cherry Home Mall for the Christmas time and were doing walking around the mall and all. And my father, who stands six foot four, was holding my nephew's hand. And her mother and, and his mother and father were like kind of behind them, and I was behind them. My mother was off to the side and so forth. And we're going along, and Ronnie wants something in one of the toy stores, and he's denied it. And he puts on a fit. He does what they do. <laughs> Crying, screaming, everything else. And my mother, being the way she is, is telling my father, pick him up, pick him up, you know, pick him up. Don't let him scream and yell. And my father, being the way he is, is saying, no, he will, he will stop this. He will just stop this and so forth. So I'm watching this all go on in front of me. And suddenly I hear a few minutes later my nephew say, well, this isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> and he stops. See, they know that. They know it. Why don't you? <laughs> they know they're creating their stuff. You see? They know it. And because they know it and you don't, they use it against you. <laughs> don't they? <laughs> they use it against you. They know what they're doing. We just forgot that. So when he stopped, guess what happened? My father picked him up and took him back to the store and got him what he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> See? What do they say? Honey attracts more flies than vinegar? I saw in a movie someone say that, and the kid said, Why would I want flies? <laughs> Why would I want to attract flies? That's where you say, go get me something to beat you with. <laughs> <laughs> so, question? Hi. Question is How is he? Um, he's doing well. Good. Say hello for me. <laughs> hello. Um, 
basically the the ideal is that or the understanding is that no one does anything to us it's they do things because of their own perceptions and experiences and that's the led them to that moment like I had a situation with the, the, you know, the guy in the car because I used to have extreme road rage. And, you know, if someone cut me off, like I'm thinking it's personal and going through and, and understanding that, you know, I've cut somebody off before, understanding I've been in the position and it could be that he's in a rush or had a bad day or didn't see me, you know, when I'm, when I'm taking myself out of like he didn't do it to me, is that kind of, <coughs> You know, it's not because of, like, people aren't doing it to me. They're doing it because of their own experience with the stuff that they've brought. Yeah, for example, if, if they are an inconsiderate driver, driver that doesn't practice courtesy <coughs> and what have you, then that you're, what you're observing that moment is that behavior, okay? Now, that, again, does not mean that if he had caused an accident and an accident that was a violation of the law, he should not be ticketed or arrested. That doesn't mean that. But ego, which is what we're talking, we're talking about what's going on in my body at any given moment. So when I'm feeling that about something you do, okay, I'm creating that. It's not because you did it to me, okay? It's not because of that. <coughs> you know, Jesus says, turn the other cheek, and some people have been doing that since then. And others said, no, no. <laughs> You know, hell with that. <laughs> See? Let's bomb them. <laughs> See? Like that. Well, there it is. You know? It's my, what I often call my agenda. People are always operating from their agenda. If you want to know what to expect from someone, find out what their agenda is. Once you know their agenda, you know what to expect. Okay? Once you know. So, for example, when I counsel people on on relationships, I tell them that, that that whole practice of courting was intended to be a period of time where we got to know the other person's agenda. We got to know their conditioning. We got to know their family. That gave us an insight into the environment they grew up. And if we were using that as it was intended to be used throughout the relationship, we knew who we were choosing to be with the rest of our lives. Today, people don't do that. They don't court. They, they meet, they fall in love, they have great sex, they get married. You see, either because they have to or because it was great sex, one or the other. You see? So discover, you know, when, so when you are looking at someone's behavior, you are looking at their agenda, what matters to them in life, okay? And what matters to any one of us in life literally determines whether or not me, that driver, even sees you even sees you. I was, telling, I was telling Mary about this. We were talking about the power of the mind again and how it creates even the images we see out here. An example I gave her, you know, I'm sure all of you have had one time or another, is that I was looking for something at the monastery. I was in a hurry to get somewhere and I was looking for this. And I had already, and I didn't realize this until I reflected back on what happened, I had already created in my mind what it was going to look like and where it was when I went looking for it. And so I had this fixed idea. It looked like this. So when you understand that mind sees only what it's looking for, that's how it operates. So 
I'm looking for this and looking for this and look and I can't find it. And I when I finally found it, it was at the place I went to six times. <laughs> and it was always sitting there. But I was expecting it to be in a bag, not just laying out. And every time I looked at this thing, I didn't see it. Until what? I just gave up looking for it. I said, oh, what the hell? And then I walked past that same place, and there it was. Because at that moment, my ego, ego gave up my attachment to the agenda, to the expectation for it to look this way and be this way. So my ego does that not only in little things, but in great things. So what I'm suggesting is, you know, not knowing the, the driver or what have you, but I'm suggesting strong possibility, yes, when they cut us off, depending on their agenda, they don't even see the car. They don't even see you. And they may not even hear the horn. If their mind's fixed on, I gotta get somewhere, that's literally not only formulating their perception of the road and the people on the road, but limiting them to what they can see or hear. You see? That's why, you know, when I grew up and learned driving, you know, you were told, don't ever get behind the wheel when you're in a rush. <coughs> don't ever get behind the wheel when you're drinking. And don't ever get behind the wheel when you're fighting with your spouse. Okay? Another question. It seems to me I've heard from you or perhaps other teachers too that we are we are attached to our suffering. Maybe it's the drama in our lives is how we're suffering. We're attached to the story about our suffering. And you're right, it's the drama. We like drama. How do you think the movie industry has made trillions of dollars? So to be happy is kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, you know, when you think about how it's it, how what really makes us happy is really very simple, okay? So if it's that simple to be happy, like the example I gave him, just smile, okay? If it's that simple to be happy, why aren't we doing it more often? Because you're right, it's boring, you know? You know? Suffering's the story is exciting. We love stories. Wait do you hear what she did? <laughs> you know, it's kind of you know. It's like I used to tell when I used to talk at um, uh, AA groups about this and everything. I used to say to them, the moment you tell me, well, I did this because my parents this that this that, you can't use that anymore. So most of them didn't want to tell me it was their parents' fault. <laughs> you, got, you can't use that anymore because the moment you say to me, this is why, now you can do something about it. So the next time you say to me, but you don't remember this, no, no, now it's, you don't do, you haven't done anything about that. You see? So yeah, we love drama. We do. We love the stories. You know, the, you know again, the other example I often use is I call you on Friday night and I say, come on over. What do you ask? What are we going to do? 
And I say to you, nothing. Usually it's, usually it's, I'll get back to you, i got to check my time. We love drama. You're right, and, and that's what they mean. We're not attached to the suffering. We don't like pain, but we're, we love the story about the suffering. And what we fail to understand is that the story is causing the suffering. You can't feel anger without thinking angry. You see? You can't feel disappointment without expectation. You see? So mind is creating, if mind is looking for something, and when it doesn't see that, it creates, ego creates the reaction to that. And that's because, my, like my cousin, no, like my nephew, he wasn't, he wasn't getting what he wanted, you know? And once he realized that wasn't working, he got what he wanted, and he was happy. <laughs> uh, thank you. Did I see a hand in the back? Hi. Uh, how are you? I had a question. Um, I understand my responsibility to my actions and that I am in control of how I perceive things, because I define it and give it meaning. Well, you're not necessarily in control, uh, but you are doing that, yes. Okay, but I'm not understanding how I would apply this to, say, a work situation. Because I was thinking of the earlier comment, you can't make me do that. Well, what if you're constantly being made in that context to do things that are not only stressful, but basically leaking into your outside life, taking up all your time, (coughs) and they can make you do that. No, so they can't. No, they can't. No, they can't. Quit. No, see, there's the agenda. My agenda, you know. Again, my. <coughs> and listen, I'm not minimizing what you're talking about. I've been there. My agenda says to me, I need this job in order to survive. That's the story. That's what's, you know, uh, creating my experience about the job. I don't really want to be here. You know, it's kind of like uh, one of the AA meetings I was talking at. This, uh, I think it was um, Laura. I think it was, um, I forget, what's your daughter's name on it? Was it the one you brought her to? That, at, at starting point? Remember you came to starting point? Laura. Okay, Laura. So I think it was Laura, uh, a, fr- a friend of mine, she raised her hand and she said, I have, ro- I have rotten work experience, rotten boss, I don't like my job, I don't like what I do, help me be happy at work. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said, I can't help you. Uh, like that. So the truth of the matter is, even though we don't want to admit it, even the extreme is our responsibility. My choice to stay, can you just slide over? No, you, you're okay. Three rows back. You're there, I want to see him. If, if my choice to stay is all part of the story, and the story is coming from me. You're saying? Now, again, how I go to work, what I bring to work. For example, I think a lot of people have a rough time at work because they don't understand the purpose of work. Okay? 
They, you know, we live in a culture today, for example, where we've made work it, okay? In my father's generation and generations before them, they worked to have it, and it was something else. Today, people work to have work, to have a job, and that has a lot to do with that shift in our experience of work. You know, it's kind of like when I was in Germany, this guy said, you, uh, we Germans work to live. You Americans live to work, you see? And because of that paradigm, because of that context of working, I think that much, many people's experience of the difficulty at workplace is coming out of that. So, for example, if you really believed you had an option, and your belief about that option would depend on how you saw, you know, when, when my daughter, my four-year-old daughter goes to bed at night, I give her four mantras to say, and, and I have her say it in the morning, and one of them is, I am capable, okay? And I teach her that that means you're not limited by anyone or anything. And I hope that sticks with her as she grows up, because I want her to know is that if she finds any environment limiting her from being fully who she is, leave. Okay? So it's kind of, did anybody see the first Oh God movie with George Burns? Mm -hmm. Remember what God says to uh, John Denver at the end of the movie? He's in the telephone booth and he meets God finally in the last scene. And he says, so what's up? And he said, well, uh, I lost my job. What does God say? There's other jobs. You see? Uh, I had to sell my home. Uh, there's other homes. He wouldn't let him get away, away with it. But again, my agenda may not allow for me to even consider that even if I lost this, this is why so many people uh, suffer from terrible stress that leads to great depression because they have identified their own potential with what they have whether it is the house, the car, or the job. So you're not your job, and if you really get that, your whole attitude, your whole experience at work, which will come from a different attitude, will be changed. That's what I'm saying. And I, I've been there. I know what you're talking about. You know, I, my father's been in the transportation business from, I tell people I was born in a truck, okay? And there's, you know, unions and management. I used to watch it as a kid on and on and on. I know the clashes that go on in the workplace. I still say it's no different than the clashes that go on at the monastery, okay? I can either make it limiting or I can bring a point of view that frees it all up. That doesn't mean your boss is ever going to change, and it doesn't mean that fellow worker over there who won't shut up is ever going to shut up, but it means you have the potential to be who you are despite all of that. If not, we're all screwed, right? Think about it. I mean, if the opposite is true, that we just can't do anything about it, then why are we even sitting here tonight? You see? I believe you came just like I chose to live a life to do what I'm doing because something deep inside you, just like something deep inside me, believes we can. I don't believe we were created to be stuck. Don't believe it. You know, it's like I tell my Jewish and Christian brothers and sisters. God created it to work. 
not to fail. I'm convinced of it. If you're not, that's your stuff. <laughs> that's why I don't bother trying to convince you. I'm not going to try to convince you. So anything else? <laughs> Thank you. Hi. On the same subject, many years ago there were millions upon millions of people who perceived Gandhi as being a saint. Yet there were probably only a few hundred British aristocracy who considered him and perceived him as being an impediment to their control. Mm -hmm. That contradiction created an awful lot of pain and suffering. Yep. And that goes back to what Ellen said. Until we all believe, really believe in peace, there's going to, war's going to continue. I'm not sure there was a way, easy way out of that. Well, there probably wasn't. There's, that's another thing we need to... I'm glad you brought that up, because that's another thing that I need to talk about. We have to stop thinking spirituality has all the answers. We have to stop thinking that there's an answer for everything. Sometimes the answer, like you said, is there's no answer. We just got to go with what we got. We got to deal with the cards that were given to us the best we can. That's why the Buddha, most people misinterpreted, he did not say do not do any harm. He said do the least harm because he knew that sometimes that's the best you're going to get. That's the best you're going to get because that's, that's just the way it is. Now, it's kind of like I say to people who ask me, do you live by the precepts? And I say, yes, except sometimes, you know. Well, sometimes I just don't. <laughs> sometimes I do rage at that person who cut me off. And then I laugh. And I'm like, wow, that was a great act. <laughs> Profound. He really got afraid of you. <laughs> That's how he pulled off the side of the road and couldn't do anything for you, couldn't do too, enough for you. <laughs> I was talking with, um, it's got to be one of you in this room because I remember it. I was talking with one of you in this room not too long ago, and I said, oh no, it wasn't, I'm sorry, I remember who it was now. She's not here tonight. Is she here? Is Alexis here? No. Huh? No, she's not. So I said to her, you know, I often tell people that um, one of the things that, you know, attracts me to God is God's arrogance. God doesn't care, you see. And when you get that, then you'll know how to talk with God, you know. And so the conversation went from that to where we were acting out conversations with God in the, in the uh, session. And I was God. And she was asking me for something, and I said, Oh, just wait a moment while I hold off the sun shining and deal with your little problem. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's how deluded we are, isn't it? <laughs> just hold, I'll stop the system. Now, what's the matter? <laughs> she made you mad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, like he said to Job, figure it out, you know, figure it out, stop bugging me. Well, Roshman's question, are learning and growth tied to suffering then, because we, we were going back to happiness being boring, it's almost, and one of the satisfactions I gain in life is learning and growth, Yeah. so it's almost like my practice is to 
develop learning and growth out of suffering somehow. That's the only way you do learn. It's the only way you do grow. Okay? So I know you're familiar with some of the ancient texts where some of the masters said samsara and nirvana are the same thing, just two sides of the same coin. Because when you take a look at the things that really contribute to our learning, stuff that really is helpful in life and our growth, it was the suffering stuff. So that goes back to, again, what's necessary is not to change the content that I perceive as causing the suffering in my life. It's to change my perception of that. So when I, for example, see suffering as you just suggested it, you know, it's kind of like, Suffering stops being something to be afraid of and run away from and becomes, wow, we're going to grow. Time to grow. Next time it comes, next time the difficult thing comes your way, just time to grow. And when you say, well, I don't want to grow. (laughs) Remember what God said. Oh, (laughs) come on. Let me help you along. <laughs> I don't want to put the sun up today. <laughs> or make the rivers flow. How's that? <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> I try. <laughs> Any other questions? All right, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to take us from the three questions to the door that shuts on the whole thing and makes it come together. So go have a break and come back. So life begins to work when we are willing to be responsible for that. And as I said earlier, responsibility has to do with willingness. It has to do whether I understand it or not, whether I believe it or not. Responsibility is the willingness to experience myself as the cause and the source at the same time, no matter the circumstance or situation. And the very design function of what we refer to as ego, both in therapy and Buddhism, has to do with what we call in Buddhism that perverted view of the world. Ego is what often is preventing us from being responsible for what we want in life, because it perceives not only the cause for us not having what we want, but it also perceives the source for having what we want as apart from us, out there. Ego perceives the cause of our suffering, the source or solution for cessation from suffering or end of suffering, always apart from us. So again, as I said earlier, when we attempt to use the mechanism, and that is the egocentric perception of mind, which is the mechanism that listens most of the time, that's listening, because its design function is survival of the being, and anything the being considers itself to be, it is designed purposely for perceiving, kind of like scanning the world, ever watching from a defensive place ever watching from a desiring place. So again, when we attempt to make the changes in our life that are necessary for real transformation cognitively or as ego, you know, ego as that mechanism, 
uh, it's like the dog chasing its tail. Uh, it may even understand it, and often I warn people that who think they have to understand this in order for it to work. No, you don't. Understanding's the booby prize. Mm -hmm. And the reason why understanding is the booby prize is often when we think, oh yeah, now I get it, I understand it, often all that's happened there is ego has found some kind of safe place with what it's just heard. Doesn't feel threatened, doesn't feel like it, it, it's that difficult, so we say we understand. In Zen, particularly in all of Buddhism and in all of Eastern thought, true understanding can only be achieved experientially. It is an experiential awareness. It is a function of the heart rather than the cognitive mind. So possibly you didn't hear this, but it was what I was saying so far the whole night. When I truly experience myself and when I truly create the willingness to experience myself as the cause and the source in the matters of my life at all times, what I am choosing to do is to be co-creator. What I am choosing to do is to create in my life rather than <laughs> wait for life to show up making me happy or delivering me what I need. So what we've been talking about tonight, whether you heard it or not, or recognized it or not, is how to navigate through the difficult times in life as the creator, rather than some helpless you know, victim with very little power over what's going on. And I just hope the world one day will wake up and get smart. Let's see. So at all times and in every moment, so what we talked about earlier was what meaning am I giving to this? How do I know that meaning to be a fact or true? And is the meaning that I'm giving to this getting me any closer to where I want to be? And the third question presumes that where we all want to be is in a place that's more peaceful, in a place that feels more uh, kind, more compassionate, more loving, and a place where we feel our own possibilities in life. <clears throat> and so that's the application throughout the day. In Zen, there's the application, such as when we talk about mindfulness, living mindfully is about applying certain techniques in the course of your day when you're working, cutting the carrots, making the dinner, driving the car, and so forth. But then there is <coughs> that resource, as I refer to it, the resource that supports all of that. And we're going to do that in, in a moment. We're going to take a look at what that is. What it involves has to do with, again, this whole matter of responsibility. So when I choose to be responsible for my experience in life, it, what comes with that is an agenda that involves taking care of myself. It involves doing the things, doing the things that empower, that nurture, and that support me in maintaining that point of view. So, I've chosen the point of view that I am at all times creating my experience of the world around me. That 
I at all times creating it, therefore I at all times have the power to recreate it. If I don't like how I'm creating the, uh, the experience, I can recreate it. And one of the ways that we create unconsciously, one of the ways that we create unconsciously, <coughs> no, I don't want to say unconsciously, one of the ways that we create um, uh, without mindfulness is, again, the story we are so quick to tell about the circumstance and situation. So at that level, however, trying to change the story, you know, kind of like, all right, I'm going to change the story of what happened doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is that the story, again, is being generated from that egocentric part of consciousness. And ego is not about to change a story unless there's something in it for it, unless there's some guarantee. So what I want to talk about right now are the two spiritual Buddhist Zen practices where we are always, whether we realize it or not, creating creating our experience, and also, uh, again, form is emptiness, and <clears throat> emptiness is form. Thought does not differ from result. As I said earlier, you can't <coughs> be angry without thinking anger. You can't have the experience of anger without thinking angry, and so forth. So, the two levels that we can consciously engage an inherent ability we have and we and that ability is operating at all times so I want you to know that what we're going to talk about right now you've been doing but hopefully after the night you're going to do it more mindfully and responsibly so you know when Ellen asked her question earlier this kind of points back to that again when we are not about the business of being responsible for what we want, we, we unconsciously are creating all of this stuff without an awareness that we are doing it. Okay? Without an awareness that we are doing it. Most of the time in the course of the day, we are so busy, and because of that, we're not, it's not like we're stopping at every circumstance that was difficult and writing a story down. Let's see, it's more like things are happening to us, and in the background, the story is running and being written, if you will. What we want to do is to be deliberately, consciously involved with the story. And, there, and the two places that we are doing that, one, we do it, uh, when, uh, we do it when we are meditating, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And does anyone know the other time when you are creating? Anybody? Sleeping. Sleeping. So when you go to bed at night and go to sleep, in that level of consciousness, you are literally writing the story, reinforcing the story, and realizing the story the day ahead or in the future, if you will. That is to say, at, the, at this level, we are consciously creating the energy that becomes manifest in our lives. We can do it at the level of meditation, and that is why, again, if you are not willing to take up as a daily diet for the rest of your life, 
meditation, you just spent the last two hours again wasted, if you will. Meditation is essential, and you'll see why in a moment. And then I'm going to show you some techniques about going to sleep tonight. Because again, just as Buddhism teaches, when you take a look at, for example, the Book of the, the, Book of the Dead, written uh, in, from, the, from the Tibetans, it talks about bardos. A word they use is called bardos. And bardos are levels of consciousness. And it talks about how, you know, people ask me, well, what about the next reincarnation? Is there any way I can know what's coming in the next incarnation, if you will? And I'm using that as a metaphor. And there is. The teaching goes that the state of mind the being is in at the moment of death when they are lying on the bed and they are dying, the state of mind that immediately preceded that moment and is present at that moment when the body ceases to exist and the, <coughs> if you will, the, the bardo is rising out of the body, the consciousness is rising out of the body, is determined by that state of mind. Likewise, when you go to bed tonight, for example, if you go to bed tonight worrying about things. You're laying in bed and you're running a story of worryment. Whatever it is, when you, if you fall asleep with that, that continues in that deep unconscious level while you're sleeping. And it is at that level we are creating or materializing that thought. We are giving it strength, we are nurturing it, and we are cultivating it in a way that it now becomes the unconscious drive in our actions tomorrow, let's say, all right? So if I go to bed feeling afraid, I'm going to wake up fearful, and whatever I dreamt about, if, you, if you're into really observing your dreams and studying from your dreams, your dreams <coughs> is, the, is, is another instrument of creating, creating, if you will. So when we talk about preparing for bed in a few moments, the, the uh, tool, the technique, is to fall asleep, if you will, with the right thoughts. Fall asleep, if you will, with the right agenda. <clears throat> For example, whenever mind thinks, I really need, that is a thought that never works. Not because the object that we believe we need is difficult to get, because you will notice, if you are honest again, that most of the time we think we need something, and then we get it, and it still isn't fulfilling. And it's not because of that object again, because that object has no intrinsic value, but it's because this consciousness that keeps this all going kind of like says, when I say, I need, it says, that does not compute. Because it knows only what? The consciousness we call creation. Now look at creation, the effect of creation, and that's where you're going to find the answer. The consciousness that call, we call creation knows only what? Desire. No. Now and what is? No. You see, you're all trying to be Zen. Stop it. <laughs> Abundance. What always comes out of creation is abundance. <coughs> creation only knows, oh, I need, okay, boof. It knows only abundance. 
it, it doesn't know lack. So when we approach it, whether in prayer or in meditation or contemplation, desiring something we think we need, that's the wrong way to go about it. Okay? That's the wrong way to go about it. So, for example, we don't fall asleep, you know, thinking about, you know, if I only had this, then I could make this work. No, we fall asleep thinking about what we do have that already works. What we do have that already works. So you need to know that probably throughout the course of my day, and probably uh, the last thought I have when I go to sleep, has to do with my daughter and how grateful I am for her in my life. And I usually fall asleep when she's not home thinking about, you know, uh, the joy, the happiness, and I often say to God, I owe you a big one. And those are some of my last thoughts. And you need to know that I think, at least since she was born and been in my life now for four years, and that's been the object of my thoughts, that's why I wake up so alive and happy every morning and really excited, you see. And if it's not Katie, it's you, it's the fact that I, I am getting to live my passion. And, you know, this isn't easy for me here because, you know, uh, for example, money's always a problem even for monks and so forth. But still, I'm grateful for that. So one of the things we want to think about when we fall asleep at night or are falling asleep is our, our gratitudes, the people and the things we are grateful for. And we don't want to just think about them. We want to really bring that. We want to really bring them in to that to our experience at that moment. We want to, for example, when I think about Katie uh, before I fall asleep, I often laugh because that day we did something silly or funny or the day before, and it made me laugh. And as Matsumiko will tell you, I'm often saying I have so much fun with this kid, and so forth. So I think about that. I think about you. You know, I think about my students. I think about the people in my life who have really supported me and helped me. I think about what's in my life now. And I think about what I want to be perpetuated in my life. So I think about, you know, this work that I'm doing and how I want to see it evolve and grow in the future. And I think about it as if, and that's what I said a moment ago, when, I, when we talk about the future, I think about it just the way I think about the now. It's already happened. It's already happened. And may I have the eyes to see that. May I have the eyes to see that. May I have the heart to know that, and so forth. So instead of desiring, for example, love from someone, we focus on the love from the many someones we get regularly, you know, when people say to me, and it, and it happens, and it happened to me, you know, when someone breaks your heart or, or hurts you in that way, immediately talk like you're loveless. But we're not, okay? We're never loveless. Somebody loves us somewhere in the world, you know? And so we, we think about that. So going to sleep at night, remember that in the level we enter into when we really fall asleep, unless, of course, you have sleep apnea and for some reason you never get to that level, but at that level we are creating <coughs> our experiences. We are reinforcing them and we are nurturing them and cultivating them. 
You need to decide what experiences you want to create. You want. When you, when you consciously involve yourself, when you are aware, because you're doing this, if you listen to me earlier, you're doing this now. You've been doing this since you were born. So if you want to know why things are like sometimes, it's because you didn't know you were doing it maybe. It's kind of like giving a gun to a two-year-old, if you will, you see? So now we want, we want to talk to you as a responsible person and say to you, now you want to do this and you want to do it mindfully and you want to do it every day, every night. Uh, Dr. Dwyer, uh, Dyer? Wayne Dyer, when he's talked about this in the past, he's even said, if you can't lay down in bed and think about these things, if you're just so in, you know, overwhelmed with worry or what happened, get out of bed until you're able to go back into bed and do it. Don't even go to sleep with that stuff. Don't even go to sleep. One of the things that Buddhism talks about is what we call consciousness at the level of uh, cells, at the level of molecular consciousness. So thought isn't just happening in my head. When it is, when it is sustained through constant worryment and it is sustained through constant doubt and all of that, when we fall asleep like that on a regular basis, it becomes cellular so that we wake up feeling afraid. We wake up always going to the negative. They're called Sicilians that do that. <laughs> like that. And we wake up doing that. We go throughout the day doing that. You see? We don't want to do that. So one of the ways to stop doing that is to, co is to be responsible. You know, uh, <coughs> Martha Stewart Buddha used to talk about, you know, in her shows, uh, making your bedroom your sanctuary. And Oprah talks about that too. So if Oprah talks about it and Martha Stewart talks about it, it's got to be right. <laughs> so making your bedroom a sanctuary is also part of it, and, and, and they're correct. Just like there's, there's a, when you come to the monastery, if you've never been there before, certainly there is an experience that's available to you in our zendo, that is unique. Not just for that zendo, but again, the environment is designed to nurture and cultivate, you know, this peaceful, contemplative learning experience. In the bedroom, you know, I'm teaching my daughter this. When you wake up in the morning, make your bed and make sure your room's neat so that when you come back to it later tonight, you're ready to get into it. And it's ready to receive you. So that's all part of it, too. So sometimes you may want to use some quiet music to fall asleep, and again, use some quiet music also to do this contemplating. But you do not want to fall asleep, you know, angry, uh, resentful, uh, fearful, desiring. You do not want to go to sleep like that. So as Dyer says, you know, then get out of bed and go do something until you're able to go back and lay down and, you know, Keep your mind focused where you want it to be. In meditation, when you understand what meditation really is and how it functions, it is not some contriving. Meditation is about, uh, when, we talk, when we talk about it this way, when we say just sit, 
Just sitting is not just taking this posture on a cushion or in a chair. Just sitting, uh, I often compare it to, again, back to my childhood life, in that same town where Aunt Laura lived, uh, back in those days, it was like Mayberry. You know, nobody locked their doors, everybody knew everybody, people made bargains with a handshake, you know, the whole type of thing. And I often talk about how there were always, you could always find on any block, the old guys on the rocking chair. And I can remember when I was a kid, not so smart, I can remember wondering, what are they doing? They're just sitting there and rocking. Just sit, and you know, it's not like they were listening to music while they were rocking. It's not like they were having a conversation. They were just hanging out, just sitting and just watching, just sitting and just watching. And if you ever took the opportunity to talk to any one of these guys, it was so cool because they were just kind of like, yeah, it's just all happening. We're like, you know, pre-generation hippies. You know, it's all happening. <laughs> Wind is blowing and I'm just rocking here and so forth. And they could tell you anything that went down in the block. So that if the cops ever wanted to know anything, these were the guys they went to. Because at the level of just releasing and just observing, all of the senses are at their ideal level and capability to observe. And in meditation, the meditator assumes the role of the observer. So in meditation, one of the things we do is we notice, just like I said a moment ago about going to bed, if you notice fearful and worrying going on, you get out of bed and you don't fall asleep until you can lay in bed and correct that. In meditation, we notice that, but we don't stop meditating. What we do is we create the space for all of that to settle or be with us in the meditation. Why? Because when we are fearful of that stuff, what you say? It stays with you. Why? Because you resist it. And there's a law of physics that says whatever you resist will persist and eventually you will become. So if you're resisting, some, for example, if you're resisting something you have to do that you don't want to do because it's going to be difficult, it's going to be uncomfortable, I don't want to have to talk to her about whatever it is. If you're resisting that, that resistance, you know, cultivates <coughs> this kind of fear and illuminates it and makes it worse. And so that by the time you get to doing that thing, whatever that is, you're nothing but fear. You're nothing but fearful. And, and there's nothing more powerful than preventing you from seeing and hearing what you have to do to resolve any issue in your life than fear. Fear shuts down, shuts down the, the uh, perceptive process of the mind, shuts it down, shuts it down, and the body and the brain do their thing. The adrenaline gets running, and the body gets like this, and it's fight or flight, and there's nothing you can do about that. So in meditation, you allow 
for the story to kind of like just sit. You don't indulge it. You don't get involved in it. You kind of look at it like this. You know, it's kind of like, and this is a practice you can do also in mindfulness. So, for, for example, in the course of the day, you, somebody says something and you have a reaction, angry, resentment. Instead of reacting, instead of acting on that, like in meditation, you sit there and you kind of like go, oh, what's that about? You take the time to just sit with it. In Tibetan Buddhism, Pema Chodron talks about this. She calls it feeding the demon. So when the demon comes, most of us want to keep it out, wants to, wants to make it go away, but the way to, to really handle demons in your life is to feed them. In Zen, it's called feeding hungry ghosts. And you do that by inviting them in, getting to know what they're really about and what they really want, and then feeding feeding them that, feeding that, that. So it has to do, meditation has to do where there's this space, you are creating space to allow all of that difficult stuff to show up while you're meditating and just being with it, making no comment about it, attaching no meaning to it, just noticing, wow, there's a lot of fear going on there, or wow, I'm really stuck on this, and just experiencing that difficulty in it. So in meditation, we are recreating. At, at bedtime, we are creating. In meditation, we are literally recreating our experience by just experiencing it because there's another law of physics that, that says whatever you fully experience disappears. Whatever you fully experience disappears. So again, back to Pema Chodron, she talks about leaning into the pain, leaning into the difficulty, rather than repelling it or leaning away from it. Lean into it. What's that about? She usually uses the uh, metaphor of a fire. Lean into the fire rather than running from it, so that you feel the temperature, you feel the burn, you experience that, and when you fully experience something, it disappears. And that's what's really going on in meditation. And that is why at the meditation level, for example, you are at your most powerful possibility that you don't have at any other level of consciousness. Because outside the meditation, outside of that level of consciousness, outside of that domain, it's all cognitive thinking. It's all this stuff. Thinking about it, thinking about it. Here is where the real work goes on. Here is where the real power is. So you have the meditation practice to support you in this, and you have the practice of what I call going to sleep right, you know, getting to bed right. And that, again, involves noticing or observing what is going on in the mind, what is going on in the body, and if what is going on in the mind and going on in the body is this worryment or fearful, anything that has to do with fear, that's what you want to prevent being your last thought before you doze off to sleep. Because that will follow you into your sleep, follow you into your dreams, and at that level, that will resurface in the, in the world of matter and things and all of that. Because that's... No, sorry. That, no, let me get this right here. 
This comes from that. Comes from that. All of this comes from there. If you were listening again to the teaching on the Heart Sutra, everything comes from the void, from the emptiness, and is reabsorbed back. So if you're creating it at that level of consciousness, you can expect to see it here. It's going to happen. And that's what the true meaning of karma is. True meaning of karma is not, you know, you do bad, you get bad things. You do good, you get good things. Kind of like you please God, you get good things. You do bad things, God sends you to hell. You can never see the difference in that. Most people's idea of karma is just an Eastern God, you know, kind, kind of thing. No, that's not the meaning of karma. Karma says if you're going to focus and indulge and dwell on the fear and the worryment, that's what you're going to get. Because this consciousness, this sunyata, this void, this emptiness, doesn't discriminate. Doesn't discriminate. Whatever we put into it is what comes out. Twofold. Any questions? So we start with taking responsibility. What does taking responsibility mean? I may not understand a damn thing he said tonight. I may not even believe it, but I'm going to do it as if I understand it and believe it and take what I get. So the next time, again, I find myself stuck on a painful circumstance or situation in my life, I ask the three questions. What meaning am I given to, giving to what happened? What am I calling it? What is the meaning I'm giving to her behavior? Second, do I know factually that that's really what's going on? Do I know that as a fact? You know, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Do I know that? And as Arnold's sharing suggested earlier, yes, he's right. Ultimately, you can't know it. So the next question is what brings that all together? Then is my remaining in that getting me any closer to being happy, to being peaceful, to being loving, to being kind, and to knowing that I am capable in the workplace. Did he leave? Yeah, he left. I knew he was going to. <laughs> being kind and capable either in the workplace or anywhere else. And if the answer is no, then it's time to rewrite the story. And you can rewrite the story in two places. You can do it through daily meditation and allowing yourself to be an open door to the demons, letting the demons enter your meditation space and just sitting with them, just following your breath while they do their thing and just noticing and observing, not adding criticism, not adding judgment of any kind, and definitely not just running the story in your head. And you can do it again at night. As you prepare to go to sleep tonight, just remember the rules. If you find yourself anxious or worried or fearful about anything, uh, stay up and watch The Late Show. When you find yourself really ready to fall asleep, go to bed, lay down, and think about the stuff that is so, the stuff you do know. Think about the what I call the, the, the gratitude stuff. The most powerful force, what always, love is always expressed through gratitude. Do you know that? Gratitude is the verb of love. It's the, it's the expression of love. When you love someone, that's all you're saying to them. I'm so grateful for you. When you love anything. So when we are you know, kind of like focusing on the things we are grateful for, the people we are grateful for, we're not just kind of like reinforcing those things in our life. We're bringing that energy 
that creates love, and love is the force that creates, you know, all the stuff we are all looking for. And even some of the stuff we're not. Watch out for that stuff. Mm -hmm. My father used to say, that love shit runs thin after a while. <laughs> I didn't say he was a wise man. <laughs> happiness is boring. Yep, happiness is boring, yep. Uh, there's another saying uh, back to that's similar to that that I like. I was sharing that also the other day. When the gods, when uh, when the gods want to hurt you, they give you what you want. Uh -oh. May I speak? Another thought is that I know I was always told in relationships you should never go to bed angry, and that really reinforces right. what you were saying. Yeah, and I think in isn't the Taurus talk about that? Never let the sun go down. On your anger, yeah. yeah, yeah. Never let the sun go down. What's that song from the sixties? Sun, sun going down on me. Before my time, Roshi. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter told me I was old. <laughs> Daddy, you old? I said you're only four. <laughs> now you're, you're, and you're telling me now. <laughs> Any questions? <coughs> well, I hope you got something out of it. So I did a lot of work. I'm sweating up here. <laughs> uh, one very important announcement I want to share with you. If you you got it in your hand, uh, the retreat in October uh, is October 18th and 19th and 20th. If you're even thinking of doing it, don't wait to register because we need to know if you're coming or not in order to keep the space reserved. Uh, once again, you know, when you're dealing with nuns, they just have their <laughs> rules and so forth. So we need to let them know how many people are coming. And if you want to spend a weekend with me and some other really neat people, Come to Menham on that date. The place is absolutely gorgeous. You'll think you're back in old England. And uh, the foliage in the fall up there is just absolutely beautiful. So if, if you want to, think of it as going to a and b for the weekend, if you will. Uh, so that's October 18th, 19th, and 20th. Register today. Get online. Use your credit card. Get registered so we know uh, that you are coming and we can tell the sisters that it's still on and all of that. So please do that for us. And send your money to dear old Captain Roshi. <laughs> Is that Captain Noah? Was that pictures oh, Captain to Captain, Captain Noah? Need a hat. Huh? Need a hat. <laughs> As always, I love being with you. It was a privilege. Good night. Thank you, Roshi. <laughs>